Ministry Council, and then the last Sunday of Advent, the Missions Council. So we thank these. Let me say this, too. Maybe you don't realize it, but every time anyone has any kind of public ministry, the devil does his best to make you miserable. And one way he does this is after that ministry is completed to try to bring depression upon you. Every preacher I know has to deal with that after preaching. And I'm sure these ladies will experience that. The devil will try to bring depression upon you. And we need to pray for people who minister publicly. After you've been at it a few years, you just say, so what? But uh, early on, not so. There was nothing unusual about the day. I was 11 years old. My sister was nine. And we were getting ready to travel to a farm outside of Westville, Oklahoma, to visit my mother's parents. The state of Oklahoma became a state November 16, 1907. Originally, this was going to be two states. The western half was Oklahoma Territory. The eastern half was Indian Territory. And in 1907, the Congress decided they wanted to make the territory states. And so it was going to be the state of Oklahoma and the state of Sequoia. But the Indians were almost all Democrats, and Congress was com uh, controlled by Republicans. And they didn't want to admit two new Democratic states to the Union, so they said, you have to combine and become one. <laughs> and so they became... November 16, 1907, the state of Oklahoma. Eight days later, my mother was born just north of uh, Lincoln, Arkansas, a little community known as Weddington. And almost immediately after her birth, then, the family crossed the border into the new state of Oklahoma. They were among the first settlers of what later became Westville, Oklahoma. And it was our practice from time to time, every few weeks, to travel and visit them. And that's what we were getting ready to do that day. The routines were so routine that we knew exactly what was going to happen next. After breakfast, we cleaned up the dishes. My sister and I first went out, climbed over the front seats of our two-door Ford, took our seats in the back. My mother came out next and sat in the passenger seat then my father came out, always last, cigar in his mouth and his Colt pistol in his hand, and put the pistol under the front seat. We never left the city limits without that pistol. And we began a drive. East on Gibson, north on York, Highway 62, east. And I knew it so well. I knew every place my father would turn off the engine and coast downhill to save gasoline. I knew every time that was going to happen. And where we went through Fort Gibson and Tahlequah and crossed the Illinois River past Boudinot Springs, turn off. We went through Eldon, past the Stillwell, turn off, went through Proctor and Christie, named after the Cherokee bandit Ned Christie. We turned left, went up a hill, and passed a sign that said, Caution, Open Range. And to the left was the lane that led to my relative's house. We spent the day, I was bored to death, <laughs> visiting with relatives, and then we got back in the car about sunset, retraced our steps, came to York, went south, 
Gibson turned west. Such routine, such boredom. But in the moment we turned from York onto Gibson, the world I knew ended, never to come back. On the corner was a newsboy crying out, extra, extra Japs bomb Pearl Harbor. We were shattered. We didn't stop to buy a paper, and our Ford, like most cars of that day, didn't have a radio. <laughs> so we hurried to Summit Street and to our house and rushed into the living room and turned on the radio. We heard the calm voice of a commentator named Daly, rather mechanically reporting what had happened. There was, and I don't know how he did this, some reporter with a telephone climbed on top of a roof and was reporting. Now, how did you do that? Because in those days... Telephones had to have long lines, but somehow he did it. It was recorded, and we heard that recording. Eleanor Roosevelt spoke briefly. Needless to say, we went to bed very, very troubled that night. What's ahead as newsmen began telling us what this might mean for America? The next day... President Roosevelt addressed the combined Senate and Congress, and here's how he began his speech. And I cannot in any way duplicate his upper-class New York accent, but yesterday, December 7th, 1941, that's the way he sounded, sort of, <laughs> a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. A day of infamy. America immediately was plunged in the most destructive war in the history of the world. Most of the mainline churches, the Council of Churches, were pacifist. And there are many in America, Reinhold Niebuhr, for example, that was urging America to get involved in the European war because of the horrors of the things that Hitler was doing. The Council of Churches opposed it. They were pacifists. But now all of that conversation had to go away because America had been attacked. And yet as horrible... Always was that day of infamy and the slaughter that it produced over the next four years. There is no way that that day of infamy begins to compare to the consequences of the great day of infamy. The great day of infamy changed the very nature of what it means to be a human being. And the life that humans have lived ever since and in some cases endured ever since has been the result of that great day of infamy. Every war fought December 7th, 1941, the day of infamy never would have happened had it not been for the great day of infamy. There's a marble bench located on the southwestern corner of Serenity Gardens, 
at Floral Haven Cemetery. I go there from time to time. I sit on that bench. With my clarinet, I play mournful tunes. Sometimes I try to sing, but I can't often because of the lump in my throat. The reason I do that is because just in front of me and to my left is the grave of Barbara Garrett. And next to that, the grave of Vicki Burgard. And as I sit on that bench, I know I am sitting next to one of the consequences of that great day of infamy. Every time a parent has trouble with a rebellious child, every time a child has to put up with an abusive parent, that's a consequence of that great day of infamy. Every time we experience disease, sickness of any kind, injury, we're experiencing the consequences of that great day of infamy. Every time we see a troubled relationship, a broken marriage, offense given and taken, all of that is a result of the great day of infamy. And you know, as we look out on our troubled world today and what a troubled world it is, we could write our own book of lamentations, probably exceeding that that Jeremiah wrote. And that's because of the consequences of the great day of infamy. To learn about the details of that day, we don't look to newspaper reporters nor listen to radio broadcasts, nor television, nor look to any ancient cuneiform. Although some have tried to make the immunist cuneiform a report of it, but it's absurd. The only account of the great day of infamy is found in Genesis chapter 3. This morning we want to think a little bit about that day and God's response to it. Again, it was a routine day. Nothing really different. Eve, Adam, in the garden enjoying a blissful life greater than anything you and I can imagine. Then came the attack. As December 7th, 1941, it was an attack of deception, duplicity, and deceit, and so was this day of infamy. And it changed the very nature of what it means to be a human. Now, when you read Genesis 3, it becomes apparent that we're looking at a very sparse account. And it's impossible to read that chapter without all kinds of questions coming to mind. Let me make two comments. A good storyteller knows what to leave out and what to include in order to make his point. There's nothing superfluous. There's no fluff in that account. You get the point that's being made. Secondly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important verses in the Bible is Deuteronomy 29, which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. In other words, there's a lot of stuff we don't need to know. 
Those are the secret things. And God has revealed to us what we do need to know. And the things He has revealed to us is so we can obey Him and do His will. Jesus said, He that has my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loves me. And He also said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. So God reveals what we need to know in order for us to obey Him and be faithful to Him. But it's on a need-to-know basis, it seems. And there's all of these things that puzzle us, and we, why and what? God says, you don't need to know. (laughs) Someday we will, but not now. One of the real problems that occurs sometimes in the world is people trying to explain those secret things and all kinds of strange theologies and stuff comes out instead of just saying, this is what God said, let's leave the rest of it alone. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent. We know that this serpent was not just any any ordinary snake. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation in two places tells us that this really was Satan. Revelation 12, 9, Revelation 22 20 verse 2, Romans 16, 20, is Genesis 3, 15 really fulfilled? Also, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. he says, Satan disguises himself. So either Satan disguised himself as a snake, or else he used the snake as an instrument in some way. And this wasn't all snakes. There's a definite article, the snake, this particular serpent, was the one who was crafty. In other words, Satan was crafty in the form of a snake. And oh, how clever. Knowing the answer to the question, he said, Now, Eve, is what I have heard true? That... You're surrounded by all of this lush fruit, and God said you can't eat any of it. Eve started to correct him. (laughs) Oh, no. We can eat of any tree, except there's one in the center of the garden, and we're not to eat it or touch it, because the day we do, we'll die. God never said that. (laughs) God said don't eat of it. She said, don't eat of it or touch it. Again, what a tendency we see among humans to add to what God has said, especially when it comes to religious laws. How tragic that so many people's Christianity consists of religious laws. We, the Pharisees did that. God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, now that means we're not to work. What's work? How much can you carry without it being work? Well, they decided if it's something you can put on the branch of a palm tree and it doesn't break the branch, then it's not work. If it breaks the branch, it is. 
uh, is it work to take a walk? And they said, well, it's not work to take a walk as long as you don't walk over seven-eighths of a mile from home. What's home? What if I'm visiting somebody? Well, home is where you eat. And so they'd pack a lunch and walk seven-eighths of a mile and sit down and eat, and they were home. Then walk another seven-eighths of a mile and sit down and eat, and so they were home. Religious laws. When I was a boy, it was so common during revival meetings that every preacher that came seemed to have some hobby. I remember one man, very powerful preacher, and he was against churches having dinners. And the reason he was against churches having dinners because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, don't you have houses to eat in? Of course, what Paul was doing, he was the church had turned the Lord's Supper into a community meal, and they were not with awesome and awe and reverence observing the Lord's Supper. And so part of Paul's argument in scolding them said, don't you have houses to eat in? But this man was hot and furious, preaching a revival meeting, to send it for church to have dinners. And that's a tendency we see so often, don't we? Denominations after denominations making all these rules that make our walk with the Lord frankly miserable instead of the joy and the liberty. Her initial answer was correct. God said you can eat of everything but leave the one alone. And then Satan attacked the very character of God. Now, really, Eve, that's not true. If you eat of that fruit, you certainly won't die. And the only reason God told you to leave it alone is because he knew that that tree had supernatural power, and as soon as you ate of it, you would become wise. You would become like God. Now, the word for God, Elohim, ends with im. In English, I am. And any time a Hebrew word ends with I am, with im, that means it's plural. It's interesting that the word for God, Elohim, is a plural word. Does that mean because of the Trinity? We don't know. But it can also be translated gods, plurally. And when the Jews were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek for Greek-speaking Christians, it's interesting that in the first part of this passage, they translated it singular. God knows, theos, singular. But he knows that the day you eat of it, you be like gods, theoi, plural. In other words, Satan was saying, God knows that the day that you eat of that tree, you will no longer be mere humans. But you will now have, then have a divine essence. And he doesn't want that. So he's telling you, leave that tree alone. And Satan was able to cause a sliver of doubt enter the heart of Eve. And she began to look at that tree. Before it had been loathsome. It had been horrible. It would have been death. But now doubting the
she looked at it with new eyes and she saw that indeed it was beautiful. And then she looked at it and it really looks like it'd be pretty good to eat. And then she looked at it and thought, then evidently, as the serpent said, it can make me wise, godlike. John wrote in 1 John, All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And all three of those things presented themselves to Eve. The sin really wasn't in the eating. That was merely an expression of it. The sin was doubting the character of God. And so... She took a piece of fruit and took a bite. Hmm, that's good. <laughs> and I'm still alive. Adam, come here. Taste this, it's good. And Adam noticed that his wife had eaten and she had not died and he took a bite. You're right. Suddenly something happened. Suddenly they became self-aware as they had never been before. We're naked. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now notice it didn't happen when Eve ate. It didn't happen till Adam ate. Why? Secret things. <laughs> but we certainly have a hint because it was to Adam God had given the command. He had passed it on to Eve. There also seems to be something of a hierarchy there. And then in anthropomorphic language, Genesis says, God walked in the garden and Adam and Eve hid themselves. God said, why are you hiding? We're naked. How do you know? <laughs> First trip Gordon and I made together into what then was the Soviet Union before the fall of communism. Our practice for quite a while on many of those trips was to stop in Helsinki to get over jet lag. When we arrived in Helsinki, it was 10.30 in Helsinki, but 2.30 in Tulsa, 2.30 in the morning. And one of the best ways we found to get over jet lag was to go to the sauna. And so we'd go to the sauna. You know, you sit in this room, naked as a jaybird, and... Uh, there are rocks that are hot, and you pour water on, and there's steam, and it feels good. Then you come out and either jump in an ice-cold pool or get in an ice-cold shower. And as I was proceeding from the sauna, <laughs> and I don't remember where I was going to a shower pool, I just remember suddenly a woman walked in with a bunch of towels. Like I said, totally naked. That's Oklahoma accent, naked. And I didn't think, I didn't realize what I was doing, but instinctively I bolted and hid behind a door. I looked around, Gordon was behind me. <laughs> and we both laughed. 
After several trips, we did get used to it, but on that first one, <laughs> I was kind of like Adam and Eve when God walked through the garden. <laughs> I was hiding out because I was naked. <laughs> and then you see God's response. The heart of God was broken, really. The heart of God was broken, but the results were these the beautiful unhindered relationship with God was ended the relationship between man and woman changed it's woman's desire was to please her husband from that point on they no longer looked at themselves the same way women would bring forth children as God had always planned, but now childbirth would be painful and even some women would die giving birth to children. The earth no longer would just spontaneously bring forth verdant produce, but now man was going to have to plow and plant and cultivate and weed, and weeds and briars and thorns would come forth, and then he would have to harvest hard work and dealing at times with problematic weather conditions. It changed. And not only that, death. You shall return to the dust from whence you came, the Lord said. They were driven out of the garden. Cherubim put to guard the garden and they probably stayed there till the time of the flood of Noah to the serpent he said you will from now on go on your belly and eat dust some have said why do that to the serpent if he was really just an innocent thing that the devil was using Chrysostom one of the early church fathers talking about this said well it's like a man who sees his son killed by an enemy, he uses a sword and he grabs a sword and breaks it in half even though the sword was merely an innocent tool. But again, no secret things, you see. We can only speculate. Then was pronounced what has come to be known as the Protoevangelium. God said in coming centuries, and we're paraphrasing, a descendant of this woman will crush your head, Satan. In so doing, he'll be wounded. And that was looking to the cross of Jesus. Having been driven out of the garden in time, they had a son named Cain and then a son named Abel. Abel became a shepherd, Cain became a farmer, and it came time to bring an offering to God. We're not told they were commanded to do so, but they did so. Abel's offering was accepted by God, Cain's was not. Some say, well, it's because Cain's was a blood sacrifice of a member of his flock, and Cain's was vegetables, but the book of Hebrews says it was because Abel acted in faith, and Cain did not. It is the heart you see it is the heart in Malachi the priests are judged 
They're judged because they are officiating at the altar and at the table of God as they are supposed to do, but it was an onerous task to them, and they resented it and even despised the table of the Lord. But they went through the ritual. Oh, how important it is that we do not just go through the ritual. That's what Paul said about the Lord's table again in 1 Corinthians 11. We, we are experiencing something mysterious, something holy, something reverent. And if one does not approach the Lord's table in that mood, if one approaches it without first examining the heart, Paul says... All you're doing is taking judgment on yourself. It is important that we don't just go through the ritual. The only time we see God involved in the next five chapters, the next actually three chapters I guess it is, is when he addresses Cain because Cain killed Abel, the first murder. And then you see the family of Cain developing a tremendous family, a brilliant family. They built cities. They became, they had ranches. They had farms. They, they invented musical instruments and, and on and on. A very brilliant, genius-like family. But God had no place in their life. Adam and Eve had another son named Seth. And from that time on, Genesis 4 tells us men began to seek God. The Seth family sought God and they lived faithfully. So the first time we read of God doing anything in those next chapters is when he spoke to Cain after he killed Abel. And the only other mention of God's doing anything was Enoch. Enoch walked with God and God took him. <laughs> okay, questions? Boy, I've got them. <laughs> The only other person that ever happened to was Elijah. Remember, he was caught up in the fiery chariot. Only two people in the history of humanity have never died, except those of us in this room, of course. Enoch and Elijah and all kinds of questions come from that. But God let man go his own way. And in time, the holy Sethite family began to intermarry and intermingle with the Canaanites, the sons of man, the daughters of men, began to intertwine, and there was no longer any holiness in the earth. Everything that man thought of did, there was evil in his mind, except for one family, the family of Noah. You know that story well. God destroyed all animal life. God destroyed all human life except for eight souls, Noah, his wife, sons, their wives, and the animals that God called into the ark. In essence, God said, I'm going to get rid of humanity and start over. He did. But immediately after starting all over, the consequences of the great day of infamy displayed themselves. Noah got drunk. One of his sons mocked his father's nakedness. They built, started building this tower so we can get up here where God can never drown us again in a flood. They were scattered throughout all the world. 
and humanity went down the path of destruction, the result of the great day of infamy. God chose a people, gave them his law, made a covenant with them, but the great day of infamy, the consequences of that, affected their lives so much that none is righteous, no, not one, Scripture had to say describing them. But God so loved the world <laughs> that he couldn't leave it alone. And so one day an old priest officiating in the temple was shocked as <laughs> suddenly there was an angel. And he told this old man that he and his old wife, whose wife had been barren all of her life, now they were too old to have kids, your wife's going to get pregnant. And that son that she bears will be filled with the Holy Ghost from his birth onward, in the womb even, and he will be the forerunner, the one that everybody has been looking for ever since I gave the promise that one of Eve's descendants would crush the head of Satan, but he in the process would be wounded. Six months later, a little Jewish girl in Nazareth was stunned <laughs> when that same angel that had spoken to the old priest showed up in her house and said, well, the Greek says kairete. We have no idea what the angel said. At least I don't. Somebody might in Aramaic. I don't speak Aramaic, but the Greek text says kairete. A blessing. Uh, hello. <laughs> Grace to you. You have found favor in the eyes of God. And then the text that was read this morning. And it pointed to that day when that baby that was born, that miraculous baby, someday there would be another great day of infamy as fallen man crucified this holy one, one of the most the horrible deaths they could give to a human. He died. Sinless. But he took upon himself the sin of humanity and conquered sin. And three days later, he was victorious over the grave. That great day of infamy this time <laughs> turned out just to kick the devil's tail pretty good. <laughs> God started over. And he's going to start over one more time. What a beautiful picture we see in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. The word advent, that, that's a combination of two Latin words, ad meaning to, and venere mean to come. You know, we sing in the Latin, O come, O ye faithful, venite auto remus, you know, come to. So he came to the first time, but he's coming again. And when he comes again, those who are in the new ark, <laughs> as of the ark that Noah was in, those who are in the new ark will be saved. Peter said, speaking of immersion, he said the like figures, as the ark saved Noah and his family, the like figure where immersion 
now saves us. Not the putting away of the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And in Second Peter, he describes that time when all of the elements will be melting with fervent heat. And then there will be fashioned a new heavens and a new earth. That being true, what manner of life ought we to live, he says. But those who are in the ark, which means in Jesus Christ, when that day comes, will know new life and joy as God begins all over again with the human race. And there will be no great day of infamy after that. No evil no Satan, no deception. There'll be no marble bench beside a grave at Floral Haven Cemetery. There'll be no more December 7th, 1941s. There'll be no more hungry little girls and boys in a Syrian refugee camp. Heaven. Heaven. As God begins again. Oh, Lord, I wish you'd start today. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Stand with me. Let's sing, Oh, Come, All Ye Faithful. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him.